You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency critique and counter-narrative. Today's conversation is with Mecca Jamila Sullivan, Associate Professor in the Department of English at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. She has written widely in popular and scholarly venues on African-American literature and culture, with particular emphasis on the Black feminist tradition, queer theory, and 20th and 21st century literary and cultural works. Mecca is the author of three books. Blue Talk and Love, a short story collection from 2015, was the winner of the Judith Markovitz Award for Fiction from Lambda Literary, and she recently published the novel Big Girl with W.W. Norton in 2022. She is also the author of the critical work, The Poetics of Difference, Queer Feminist Forms in the African Diaspora, published by University of Illinois Press in 2021 and the occasion for our conversation today. In this conversation, we discuss the origins of the project, the curiosities, political interests, and theoretical orientation behind her exploration of literary, sound, and visual cultures, as well as the relationship between her fiction writing and her work in critical theory. Hello, Mecca. How are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm great. I'm really happy uh, you made the time to talk about your book today. Um, I read it, I, and I really mean this, it is one of the most interesting and I think really important books I've read in a long time. It's, it's really beautifully written, um, and just the critical conceptual work, um, the blending of different sources, different media, um, is just really rare in our profession. And I love the book, and I was so happy when you uh, managed to carve out a time. Uh, to talk. I know that you're super busy with book tour stuff. And so I love the book and I'm really uh, just excited we have a chance to talk about it today. Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm so glad you found the book meaningful and I'm really excited about this conversation. Let me start with um, a, really an invitation, open ended invitation to ask you about the origins of the book. Mm-hmm. You know, I always say, you know, books are not just uh, a thing we do on the side when we mm-hmm. decide to write a book. Um, it takes over our lives and, you know, it, it takes something out of us, right? Mm-hmm. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, in terms of our relationships. And mm-hmm. um, so something motivates us, right? We don't just write because it seems like a fun thing to do. It's, it. it's something draws us to these projects. And so, you know, I always like to ask, sort of as a way of getting started, what sort of concerns, you know, cultural concerns, philosophical concerns, mm-hmm. political concerns, creative concerns drew you to this project? You know, why this project and why write it now? Right. Well, you know, I've always, as a writer and as a reader, I've always been sort of curious about and really interested in the relationships between language, kind of linguistic or artistic expression, and Black queer and feminist experience. And so the kind of connections between, and of course this comes in some ways from, you know, having been a Black queer person all my life, right, and a Black queer woman all my life. Feminism, you know, as I learned the language of feminism, which happened very young, my mom was the kind of, 
you know, sort of self-avowed Black feminist. And so I grew up, she had this amazing Black feminist library. And I started to kind of um, find myself, honestly, in Black feminist literature from a very young age. And I started to see that, you know, what was happening with language and some of the texts I love most was not just about self-expression, but it was also about sort of problematizing expectations around the body, around sexuality and desire, around sort of community or collectivity. And so these are themes that I've always been interested in as a reader and as a creative writer. So, um, you know, fast forward many years, I was doing a master's degree in English and creative writing and found that I actually also love teaching Black feminist literature, Hmm. which is what brought me to a PhD program in English Lit. So then I end up in this English department, you know, sort of very well supported in reading and thinking through Black feminist literature. Um, But I needed to find a language to draw those connections between my study of literature and my investment in creative expression as a creative writer. Hmm. And so that was really the sort of seed of the project, was trying to figure out how the writers that I admired most as a reader and as a creative writer, how they use language and use kind of creative form to make interventions into how we understand difference and power. And it truly was a genuine curiosity. As you pointed out, though, beyond it was an intellectual curiosity, and there was truly a kind of like spiritual need um, and an emotional need for me in a way, because I needed, I knew that if I was going to write a dissertation, it needed to be something I cared about deeply. And this question of, again, sort of what is the skin between creative expression and Black feminist theory, that was a kind of, you know, a burning, urgent question for me at the time. Um, and I knew I needed it to be something so, so deeply kind of urgent so that I could see it through, you know, through a dissertation and then, you know, sort of rewriting it into a book, you know, for sort of more, for broader engagement. Yeah, that's that phrase, see it through, I, I think is one of the, the, the under thematized parts of book yeah, writing, totally. because there is that moment where we all look at our book projects and it's half written, two third written or dissertation projects. And yeah. you just say like, why am I doing this? Right. <laughs> um, and there has to be an answer. Um, yes. But it's really interesting. You say, you know, that, that your mother had a, a black feminist library. Mm-hmm. I really think there's, you know, there's a, a volume of sort of short memoir pieces to be written about, mm-hmm. about uh, home shelves for yeah. writers. You know, what yeah. did we see, you know, what drew yeah. us or, or what didn't, you know, but um, yeah. that's a, it's just interesting that you also mentioned that, you know, not only, you know, your curiosities and things that you liked as a reader, but also the way this connected to the things you were surrounded with right, know, as absolutely. a child. Yeah. And your point about what, what didn't draw you. I mean, I think as much as for me, you know, encountering the kind of wealth and the intellectual richness of that library. And again, we're talking Morrison, Shange, Kincaid. I mean, truly, you know, Audre Lorde, all of the people that I write about in this book and, you know, all of the people that I've been reading all my life. But at the same time too, there is this sense of, especially if you're encountering this library or, you know, this sort of set of texts early on, perhaps you're more aware of, what you find missing, right? Or what you sort mm-hmm. of need there that isn't fully represented there or what questions, you know, these archives hold that you might want to kind of continue to pursue throughout your life. And that was absolutely the case for me. Yeah, I love that. That's, that's totally interesting. Somebody needs to put together a collection of people reflecting on these moments. Yeah, I um, love that. I think they're they're really real. I have such, I would have such an uninteresting story to tell. I'm not a very good one. Uh, the first book I ever pulled off my mother's library was The Shining. 
started when I was eight. I got so scared. I put it in my lunchbox and buried it in the backyard. (laughs) So So you buried it in the lunchbox in the backyard. Yes. So maybe actually, you know, one of my primary concerns as a writer is how to read absences. So maybe actually Mm. the underground. Anyway. (laughs) Fascinating. Well, it's also sort of like entombed in a lunchbox, which is really interesting. (laughs) Spider-Man lunchbox. I miss, I miss the lunchbox, but I felt protected. Yeah. Yeah. He had your back. Spider-Man got you. (laughs) So let me ask you about the title of the book. Um, and I have a few questions that don't even get us inside the book, but um, actually, I think your title and subtitle are in, uh, are really um, direct, uh, you know, pathways into the ideas in the book. So I want to ask you about the title, um, Poetics of Difference, mm-hmm. um, and I'm interested in how, what drew you to the word difference, mm-hmm. and how you understand this word difference in relation to poetics. Right. It's not not authors of difference. It's not people of difference. It's not styles of difference. It's poetics of difference. And so what is difference and related to poetics? And I'm sort of interested then also in the subtitle, which is uh, Queer Feminist Forms in the African Diaspora, which, again, is a fairly straightforwardly descriptive um, uh, subtitle. Mm -hmm. But I'm interested also there with this term in your choice of the term forms mm-hmm. rather than writers or traditions or these other things. Yeah. So sort of if you could walk through the title and subtitle for us. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, my thinking through difference really does have to do with that process I was describing. You know, I was as I was sort of trying to figure out again, what are the links between what I see as these sort of innovative uh, uses of language in this archive of text that I care about and I'm so sort of compelled by, and the re- and you know the sort of relationships they hold to experiences of identity, right? And you know, as I started thinking this through, the language I had for my discussion of identity, you know, was intersectionality, right? And I was thinking a lot about intersectionality theory. Um, and, you know, even at that time, as I was really sort of beginning this project, you know, I, I was very much aware that intersectionality theory is often misunderstood as a theory about a kind of depoliticized vision of difference, right? Sort of, mm-hmm. you know, there's gender, there's race, there's either class or sexuality. Very rarely are we sort of, you know, called to think about both at the same time, at least in a kind of popular imaginary Um and that these are simply sort of differences of identity, sort of neutral, again, sort of depoliticized, uh, you know, sort of vectors of identity, mm-hmm. maybe subjectivity. And yet in the work that I was reading and in the work that I was most invested in, that was absolutely not the case, that difference was always connected to power. And that difference in some ways is a way, at least, if, you know, again, from this sort of Black queer feminist literary theoretical standpoint, talking about difference is a way of sort of troubling those hierarchies of of difference and power. In other words, naming difference is a way to say that there are, that race, gender, class, and sexuality are all sort of mutually constitutive in a political arena. And that the focus on difference as a way of sort of getting to and troubling power also expands us out to multiple other sort of vectors of power, right? And that, mm-hmm. that allows us to talk about ability and disability, body shape and size, nation, right? Language, even sort of linguistic difference as politically charged. And these are all of the things that I saw happening in in this archive of text that I was so invested in. And so I really, you know, 
on one hand, that including difference was a way of sort of naming the vast sort of array and, and spread of difference. And of course, you know, I guess another point that's important to make is that, you know, theories of difference, there are, there are several theories of difference in sort of each of these theoretical worlds that I'm engaging, right? So we've mm-hmm. got theories of difference, of course, in feminism and in Black feminism, gender and sexuality studies, critical race studies, right? Sort of African diaspora studies. And then also in, you know, kind of literary criticism, linguistics, right? And sort of, it was very helpful to think about what difference means in each of these discourses Mm -hmm. and how then difference signals this nexus, which is exactly what I'm trying to think about. How do black queer and feminist writers and artists use language to express the kind of urgent political and social stakes of difference. Mm-hmm. In terms of the other part of the title, queer feminist forms in the African diaspora, you didn't ask specifically about this word, but queerness was very important, right? It was important to me to sort of name this as a project concerned with queerness um, because first of all, you know, my way into thinking about difference is heavily inflected by not only queer theory, but also black feminist theory as always already queer. And so it was important to me to sort of name queerness as a kind of key, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of through line or, or, you know, a kind of joint between mm-hmm. and among all of these bodies of thinking that I'm interested in. And in terms of form, as you point out, you know, both poetics and forms, I think, are kind of doing a lot of work in my title. Um, you know, they're both gesturing to a kind of a breadth, right, a kind of very broad range and array of linguistic um, and artistic ways of thinking through multiplicity. And so, you know, forms in a way, they allow me to think about not only, you know, sort of literary form, poetic form specifically, right? Like, are we talking about, you know, villanelles or are we talking about free verse poetry, right? Sort of named forms, but also they, that term allows me to think about sort of all of the different ways in which these writers and artists that I'm looking at create new sort of methodologies, creative methodologies Mm -hmm. that challenge, you know, how we think and how we interpret and how we read in a broad way. Um, It was important to me, and I think this is in the question as well, it was important to me to kind of highlight the forms and the poetics as opposed to naming, you know, sort of hailing, right, specifically categories of producers. So writers, artists, right? Because I really am interested in the forms. I'm interested in what they create um, as a way of sort of thinking through not only their own experiences as, you know, as subjects, as writers, but also there's there, all of these writers and artists that I'm looking at are gesturing toward uh, a vision of kind of a broader collective. And mm-hmm. it's the forms that allows them to get there, right? So it's not just about them as as artists, right? It's also about sort of how their interrogations and expansions of form really speak to, you know, a broader reading, viewing, listening community. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I thought that uh, when I looked at the title, and I'm one of these uh, readers who I spend a lot of time looking at the cover and the title, and I I think it's kind of like trying to anticipate what's to come. I don't know, it's sort of like watching a trailer or something for a film, and then going, then opening it up and going to the film. But I mean, that was the thing that caught me was, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that notion of, of, uh, that that term forms and the way yeah. a notion like form opens up a sense of fecundity that yeah. specific that naming specific as you say specific writers or even writers right. or musicians or culture producers however we might sort of yeah sort of, um, 
you know, uh, what would you call it? Like organize right. you know, who we're talking about instead that, that focus on form, it just has such a fecundity to it that, yeah. you know, the, the book, I, I do think it's one of the things I love about the book is I think as much as it's about particular writers, you, what you're actually doing with those particular writers, as you said, is showing how they're doing this thing that allows all kinds of other things to happen and yeah. new ways of reading other 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 writers and musicians and visual artists. Yeah, I appreciate that. And it's true. I think that is the other use of that second half of the title is calling to the reader's attention that they are going to be asked to kind of engage these forms, right? And it's, you mm-hmm. know, sort of not only sort of forms of expression, but also forms of interpretation, forms of engagement, forms of, you know, sort of pleasure taken in the written world or in, you know, sort of creative expression. And that is something that I see as sort of an interaction happening between artists and, you know, reader, listener, if you will. Let me also ask you about the cover, which I really loved. It has on the cover as a work uh, titled uh, Creature of the Gray Lagoon, yes. which is, I love that the, the title alone is 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 fantastic, by uh, Amaryllis uh, de Jesus Molesky. Right. Um, it's really striking piece. And so I want to ask you, uh, and when I when this podcast is live, uh, there'll be a link to the artist okay. uh, as well as, a, uh, you know, the, a reproduction of the cover so that yeah. people can take a look at it. So I'm interested in, you know, why this cover and how for you it might frame or or embellish the work that you do in the text itself. Mm. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I just love her work so much. Um, and, you know, I should say that my first step in kind of, you know, figuring out what, you know, in the conversation around cover design was to reach out to my community of Black queer feminist artists, right? And sort of mm-hmm. say, okay, who's doing work that represents, you know, our bodies, our voices, um, our desire? And so it was, there was a kind of crowdsourced element mm-hmm. there too, which was, you know, it was important that. to me to make sure, yeah, that like, you know, whatever resources might be available would go to a member of the community. And she was someone who many people pointed out to me. And so as I was looking through her work, I absolutely appreciated her use of color. I do think in general in her work, she uses color. She uses sort of the form of the body, which of course, I guess I should have mentioned earlier, right? Is of course (laughs) a really important sort of part of what's going on in the book. She uses, you know, sort of feminine and I would say sort of feminist forms in the sense that they sort of trouble expectations around gendered bodies, right? She Mm. represents a lot of big bodies, a lot of fecund bodies, right? A lot of bodies that are uh, sort of, expanding beyond the the borders of the page or the kind of shape that seems to be allotted mm-hmm. to them. And so and that is true of much of her work. This piece in particular, I really appreciated the kind of, the way she uses line and sort of, there's a kind of stark contrast in color and shade and gradation in ways that I really think sort of evoke difference. Honestly, my favorite part of the image is what we see happening in the kind of lower third where, you know, there's a figure who's standing or, you know, we can't even see sort of how far, we can't see sort of how how far down she, her body goes, but we see her sort of placed within what looks like water. And you've got these really sort of interesting body parts that are sort of circulating, you know, around her body mm-hmm. and sort of through the water, the eyes in particular. I just thought what's happening there with perception with, um, you know, a sense of both groundedness, but of course, also the water evoking, you know, possibly a kind of movement, perhaps even a movement between bodies of 
land, right? Sort of gesturing to diaspora in a way that was important to mm-hmm. me. Um, all of these things I felt, you know, sort of very much in conversation with the themes of the book and the tongue, right? Sort of, you know, the, I find that sort of, again, voice expression, the kind of the, the, the tongue as a kind of punctum on this image, even as it's not initially necessarily legible as a tongue, but once you sort of see what's happening with the tongue, as it leads to the body, all of these things I think are sort of consistent with um, and expand upon a lot of the things that I'm thinking about in terms of embodiment, self-expression, mm-hmm. diaspora, um, difference, um, and queerness, right? Again, queerness as sort of a subversive multiplicity. So it, you know, it seemed like a wonderful fit. And it's been it's been very cool. I mean, it's also, I think, I just love, I just love it, which is yeah. I think important too. <laughs> you know, I just love it. I and I had meant to say uh, when I asked the question, you know, it's fine to just say I loved it, <laughs> you know, yeah. because. But yeah. you know, it, it also I knew that it, you know, I mean, I, I mean, it's, you know, I, I, can't, I can't imagine seeing the piece and not thinking it's it's visually pheno- you know phenomenal. Yeah. But um, but yeah, as you said, I mean, for me, what really stood out was uh, was the the way the aquatic visuality, right? Yes. The way the the water. Um, you know, distort is not the word I'm looking for because mm-hmm. distort sounds like it like pulls apart. Right. But this is, but it's like the way water can like embellish yeah. beauty by making it, you know, beautiful things, or just embellish, you know, the presence in this case of bodies right. and body parts, um, and making them look different. You know, while right. while also them being identifiably bodies, you know, in that right. sense of fluidity, yes. right? this, to to use the obvious sort of term here, right? Mm-hmm. But that sense of what fluidity, like moving to 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 make that bot the body in the painting, right? A body of difference, absolutely, yeah, and it's expansive, right? I mean, I think we can see, and that's why the movement yeah. part is important to me. So we just sort of see. Yeah, kind of this outward movement from the body, you know, beyond the, the the border of the page or the border of the image. And so we, you know, to me, there's a gesturing toward a possibility there that's really mm-hmm. important to me as well. Yeah, and I, I do have to say thank you also because I didn't know this artist's work, yeah. but immediately went and, and, and searched. And so hopefully people who listen to this uh, will do the same because I, yeah. I agree with you. It's really incredibly interesting. Yes, yeah, gorgeous. Um, so speaking of work and works and figures, um, you know, one of the things that any reader, even just opening it up and flipping through and noticing, you know, names on the page, yeah. uh, will see is, is an incredibly interesting collection of thinkers, of, mm-hmm. of, of thinkers and artists. I just say thinkers, meaning sure. you know, the whole, the whole range of, of way thought, uh, is, is expressed. You know, you have some canonical figures, you know, Audre Lorde clearly mm-hmm. is, is prominent figure. Um, but then you also have, I think for a lot of readers, much lesser known mm-hmm. figures. You have, uh, you know, photograph uh, photographers, you know, Missy Elliott figures mm-hmm. really prominently for me in some of the, the most important parts of the book. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, everything from popular music to you know, a canonical foundational figure in, in, in the black feminist tradition in Lord mm-hmm. and so much in between and even beyond that. Um, and so I'm curious as to hear you talk about what drew you to particular thinkers in this book, 
right? What guided your choices in the project? I mean, I know a lot of it's just curiosity and interests and passion, mm -hmm. but, you know, it's also those curiosities and interests and passions have a lot of story behind them as mm -hmm. well. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, so in some ways, the origin story of this book is also the kind of thing that sustained the writing of this book and really sort of crystallized the theory, you know, as I was developing the idea. In other words, that, that one question, again, sort of who are the artists that I find using language in these very sort of particular deliberate and disruptive ways to make claims about Black queer and feminist experience, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I began with, the archive that I began with tended to be the more sort of familiar figures, um, especially Lord and Shange, who of course are most explicit in their sort of innovation of new genres, right? Lord who says, okay, I'm going to create this biomythography, Zami, mm -hmm. which is sometimes read as a memoir, but I think is, you know, it requires us to engage sort of life writing or self-reflective writing from this place of a kind of, you know, uh, heterogeneous sort of mode of engagement or mode of interpretation. Similarly, Entezaki Shange develops the Korea poem, right? And sort of this invention of a new genre to tell stories about Black feminist experience, about Black women's experiences of embodiment, of collectivity. So that idea of sort of inventing, deliberately sort of self-consciously creating and inventing a new genre, specifically to tell a story about Black women's experiences in those cases of multiplicity and multiple structures of power, mm -hmm. you know, that that's where I began. And yet, you know, as a reader, it's impossible for me to understand those moves outside of the context of some similar moves that I saw happening in, you know, in various forms, right? Various other art forms and the works of various other writers. So I saw a kind of, I won't say a clear through line, but I, I felt a very strong through line or strong set of connections or linkages. I keep thinking about the kind of the the worried line, right? I've sort of, I keep, mm. you know, I, I see very clear sort of, you know, sort of lines, um, but sort of fluid lines between these gestures that we see from folks like Shange and Lord, and, you know, others who are, as you said, lesser known or perhaps more contemporary. So for example, you know, Missy Elliott, right? What, what Missy Elliott does in her 2001 song, Work It!, where, you know, in the chorus, right, as I put my thing down, flip it and reverse it, and then we hear that played in reverse, that's a disruption of language that I, I find quite similar in some ways to the disruption of language we have in Zami, when suddenly we're sort of brought out of, you know, kind of narrative prose mode and asked to contend with a song lyric or with poetry mm -hmm. or with prose poetry or with a form that we can't quite even sort of name, right, in terms of genre, you know, the, the destabilization of the primacy of sort of quote unquote standard English um, and the destabilization of expectation around language and meaning, that's something that I saw happening, you know, in a broad range of forms, even visual forms, right? So you mentioned the, you know, photography, Zanelle Maholi's photograph, she calls it a, they call it a visual fusion, right? Which is titled, What Do You See When You Look At Us? We get these photographs, mostly portraits, of Black queer women in South Africa. And interspersed among the photographs are these poems, you know, by figures in Moholi's community. Mm. You know, that to me is a similar kind of disruption, right? Language is coming to sort of interrupt our expectations around 
you know, the body, around desire, um, around identity. And that's a, it's a, you know, sort of a, a theme that I saw and a motif really, and a strategy that I saw recurring within these canonical texts, but also far beyond these canonical texts. And I became really sort of interested in just, again, naming those connections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was funny. Interesting. It was interesting hearing you talk about, you know, you said the fluidity and of the mm-hmm. lines, which of course uh, was exactly how you were describing the cover. Right? Yeah, so, yeah, so right. There's exactly. a nice continuity yeah, there. Totally, totally. And you know, I mean, there's so there's so much to be said. I think about sort of fluidity. I mean, I hesitate a little bit because, of course, fluidity sometimes I think tends to you know connote a kind of ease, right? Yeah. And yet that isn't, you know, that isn't what's happening here, but there's a fluidity in terms of a kind of, there are rhythms, there are sort of cadences, there's commitment to, well, commitment to rhythm, commitment to cadence that sort of facilitate motion and connection in -hmm. ways that I find really interesting, interesting enough to spend, you know, a couple hundred pages trying to name, name them, you know, name those strategies. And not to, you know, to, you know, overwrite this, the, you know, any of this with, with a, you know, a canonical text, but I mean, thinking about the way you were talking about the way, you know, you know, what, what Eliot is doing with language in the song, but even just the composition of these different pieces in relation to each other. I mean, I I kept thinking this when I was reading um, and and then hearing you talk now even more so about how in some ways the structure of the book sort of follows Hurston's descriptions of angularity and the characteristics mm. of Negro expression wow. essay, which is about very particular kinds of expression, mm. right? Because it's sort of anthropological text, but you know that sense in which you know to understand these t- these texts broadly speaking that that mm. you're dealing with, but also the relationship between them, it's like the the you know that sort of mm. fluidity, but like a kind of angular way, the way things yeah. are being sort of curved at unexpected moments to forge different relationships, and that that's the form of the, of, the form. that the book is after. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, and I mean, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, the the move from dissertation to book, right, was my chance to really kind of have a bit more of a strategy myself in terms of the form of the book. Right. And, you know, and, and in some ways that became a question of audience and, you know, your reference to Hurston, I think is really helpful and sort of meaningful to me. In some ways I do think, you know, what Hurston is doing in characteristics of Negro expression is she's offering among many other things, right. She's offering a kind of a call to interpret Black language, right. In addition to the, the kind of substance in the text that's there, it's also sort of, offering up a challenge, right? That's sort of like what happens when we look at Black language as itself a set of strategies for communicating lived experience, for communicating difference, for communicating power, for denoting community and sort of, you know, sort of um, creating and, 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 you know, sort of forming boundaries around and sort of borders between and among communities, right? All of these things I think we see happening in that essay. And certainly that's, those are the elements of the text that I'm looking at that I really want to highlight, right? And especially thinking about what does it look like when we, you know, think about Black queer feminist expression as, you know, a set of strategies that has characteristics and that has this social meaning that is meaningful and important, not only for Black queer women or Black queer people of the diaspora, but actually that's crucial for understanding race, gender, class, sexuality, power, and difference more broadly. And I do see, you know, 
in some ways, I think that's what characteristics of Negro expression offers us mm. as well. So I'm honored, of course, to be, you know, be in conversation with her. And yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought about her as a, I hadn't thought about that essay as a kind of, you know, direct influence on my form in in this book. But you know, it's a, it makes sense, and I appreciate that connection. Yeah, I think the way you put it was was what I was, you know, definitely uh, trying to get at, which is. You know that it's an invitation. Uh, the essay, I do think you're right. It's an invitation to to think differently right. about Black expressive life right. broadly, and then you know how that plays out in particular examples, whether it's right. Ellison's lower frequencies or right. your Poetics of Difference book. Right. And, you know, um, you know, I, I, I'm. It's one of these essays that, for me, you know, and this is as much autobiographical mm-hmm. as, as analytical, but. You know, for me, it organizes so much of what comes after it in yeah, the sense of yeah. she sets out, as you say, like a challenge yeah. that you can see so many different writers, you know, consciously or just because she names something that's yes. really happening in the world right. are, are reckoning with. And I, I just think your book, that attentiveness that you have to what authors, what, 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 um, what, uh, you know, what what producers of texts mm-hmm. I'm trying to, you know, it's a hard oh. thing about talking about books that talk about mm-hmm. photography, music. Yeah. So the text broadly, the producers of texts, yeah. you know, what they're, what they're uh, doing, you know, it's, that's the interplay of, of the reader, you and the yeah. text, but also the way these texts are a part of a tradition right. while also diverging from it, right. right. Or and- swerving from it in important ways. Yeah, and maybe even expanding it. And I, I appreciate what you're saying yeah. because it may, this is also, I think, it goes back to that question of the archive, that this tradition is truly not limited to print text. It's not, mm-hmm. and nor is it written to what we sort of think of as, traditionally what we think of as text, right? I mean, yeah. so, you know, I'm thinking a little bit about social media. I'm thinking about, you know, sort of the Say Her Name movement, right? And sort of how you know, if we're taking seriously the idea that disruptions of language can be meaningful in terms of how we think about subjectivity and how we think about power, suddenly the kind of field of what constitutes a, a viable text or at least a text that's available for, you know, this this kind of intellectual engagement and this kind of interpretation, that field broadens and widens and expands. And that's something that I found really, um, and that's something that I was sort of learning as I went, right, as, as I'm sort of developing this theory, I'm realizing that I'm seeing it in more and more places. And so then it became about choosing which sort of, you know, um, which instances or which sort of manifestations of this set of creative strategies that I was seeing, like which ones were the ones to create this constellation that I would engage in the book. And as someone who was educated as an undergraduate and then graduate student in the late 80s and early 90s, this is a thing that, you know, I know Jacques Derrida's work has really faded in terms of its presence in, in yeah. literary and cultural studies. But when he said, you know, the world is a text, you know, yeah. you know, the reactive kind of thing was like, oh, there is no reality. or what. But he really was opening up this possibility yeah. of like what we call a text is like a right. sound, a gesture, a posture, right. a written, an essay, a poem. Uh, uh, you know, all sorts of vernacular forms. Yeah. And so so I, I like that idea of text yeah. in that expansive way, but I think it's kind of faded from, I use it still hoping that people remember yeah. that. Yeah, right? <laughs> so, no, so. totally. Well, it's funny because even, you know, first of all, yeah, Derrida, right? I mean, I, you know, Difference becomes very, I was almost going to go into Difference when we were talking about 
you know, difference and what I'm doing with difference. But certainly, right, that idea as, you know, thinking about difference as as multiple differences and, you know, sort of multiple, he talks about a kind of weave, right, of multiple differences that are connected to one another that we access through, in some ways, the text, right? You know, and I think there, as you point out, text doesn't just mean, you know, sort of bound print published language, right? It, it, it means that which is available for interpretation, particularly maybe through linguistic expression. And meanwhile, too, then in 2022, you know, text has, I think, has many other sort of connotations and, and can often be outside of academia. The term text can sort of be read as jargonistic or exclusive in some way, right? Sort of what what's the difference between a novel and a text? What's the difference between a poem and a text, right? Is it just that academics find it intellectually valuable? And certainly, you know, part of what I'm trying to do in the Poetics of Difference is trouble those distinctions as well. So you spoke uh, in some ways to this question already, but just to to ask it directly, you know, you I, I, I like your account of of the origins of the book and sort of your what drew you to particular figures, and you know part of what's strong about this book and you know it's just a feature of strengths of of, of good books generally mm-hmm. is the way sort of multiple multiple figures in a book are threaded together, mm-hmm. and one of the things that really stood out for me about about the poetics of difference is that it it is literary cultural studies visual studies but it's also a very theoretical text mm-hmm. and um you know often i mean i'm a, I, i'm a pure theorist yes. um in 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 every way but this was not a book that i had to read to to make theory out of i mean it's very mm-hmm. theoretical in its own right mm-hmm. And so I wanted to hear you talk a little bit about how you how you would describe your theoretical orientation because it's not just that you have a theoretical orientation, yeah. right? Uh, you know, queer black feminist theory, or you know, some. Right. It's not like a genre, a subgenre, yeah. or a genre. It's really some, a, an orientation in the book that allows you to see things in both familiar and unfamiliar. I'm mm-hmm. thinking in terms of sort of literary studies establishment, right? Mm-hmm. Familiar and unfamiliar texts. Your, your orientation allows us to see things that we wouldn't see mm-hmm. did you, had you not framed them in the way you do. Mm-hmm. And that framing is theoretical. So mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear, I'd really like to hear you talk about how you understand your theoretical orientation and what it draws out of somebody like Lord, who's been written right. about, but also uh, is able to draw out of, um, you know, figures that you're bringing to our scholarly attention, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily for the first time, but in a sort of first wave. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I, there, I think there are a couple of a couple of sort of approaches to this question come to mind. But you know, my investment in theory has. So I, I'm, I'm most interested in theory as language, right? Sort of theory as a way of expressing, you know, ideas that I that either I may have had, right? Or that, you know, sort of a way of expressing ideas that I see sort of circulating beyond the quote unquote theoretical. You know, when, when a theory, when I find a, an idea or when I find a, you know, quote unquote theory sort of compelling, it's when there's that sort of spark of recognition, right? That somebody mm-hmm. has, has brought language to something that I found meaningful and something that I find sort of 
useful in connecting other sets of ideas. And so from that perspective, you know, many of the writers and artists that I'm talking about, I see as theorists, right? And so I sort of approach theory in some ways in this book, at least I, you know, I, I sort of approach theory initially right away trying to undermine it, right? Undermining sort of what we think of as theory. So mm-hmm. Lord is a theorist, not only because, for example, she develops this incredible theory of the erotic or really important theory of poetry and poetics in her essay, Poetry is Not a Luxury, but also because, you know, her her poetry, again, the genre of the biomythography, I read as instantiations of theory. Mm-hmm. Um, so in order to get there, I'm going through several bodies of theory, right? So, you know, queer theory has been really important to me. And, you know, when I think about sort of queer theories of difference, you know, and a lot of these folks don't sort of show up in this version of the book, right? They were sort of, they helped me to kind of get to where I was going. But, you know, Foucault's notion of the incorporation of perversions, right? You know, I mentioned Derrida, these different ways of sort of accessing language to talk about these ideas of difference so that I could name the theoretical interventions that I saw happening in these creative texts. So it's an interesting relationship with theory because again, you know, I, I think about theory a lot. I think about sort of the meanings of theory a lot, but in many ways, what's most important to me in this book is to argue that theory is not separate from creative production or from creativity. And that honestly, that is that I find articulated most clearly and most consistently in the theoretical writings of some of the creative writers that I'm mm-hmm. engaging. So Lord is a great example of that. You mentioned Hurston, right? Who, you know, I think especially characteristics of Negro expression is a great example. It is a theory of sort of, again, black language, what becomes a VE, right? And at the same time, it is also a creative text. You know, Shange, right? There's some of her theories of difference and her theory of nuance in her essay, Taken a Solo. You know, to me, it's not, it's not a coincidence that some of the theorists that I'm most interested in or some of the theories that I think most clearly articulate the connections between, again, language and Black queer and feminist experience come from theorists who are also creative writers mm-hmm. or creative writers who are also theorists. Yeah, I find the sort of what orients theory in in in, in reading and writing and or what are resources it's always so interesting and i think for example you know i think there's a te- there's not just a tendency i think there's an assumption that theory is going to come from a theoretical text and then you you know it's something yes. like an instrument right. but i'm always struck in you know when actually people start to talk about you know where their theoretical yes. orientation comes from um it's so often not from that theoretical text i mean yeah. You know, not to go in a completely different direction, but, you know, when Glissant talks about, you know, what orients, what orients him as a theorist, he says mm-hmm. it's the odd jobs worker. It's like mm-hmm. the person who is walking around the, the, the docks, you know, who can drive right. your taxi, who can take you fishing, right. who can do money exchange for you. You know, it's, and he's like, this right. is, and then a, a whole theory sort of flows out of that. And it's not him laying over, but ra- rather how these practices, which can be every day, they can be literary, they can be musical, are themselves right. theoretical events. Right. And isn't that what makes theories enduring, oh, right? Yeah. I think the most enduring theories and the most useful, th- I mean, I, I hesitate to use the term useful, but, you know, the theories that are most helpful, maybe, mm-hmm. right, sort of come from 
you know, experience in the world or come from an interest in the world beyond the, again, the quote unquote theoretical or beyond, you know, certain realms of discourse, right? Again, that notion of expansion, I think, at least the theory, the the sort of realms of theory that I find most helpful are those that sort of expand outward, you know, between speaking communities and reading communities. Now, I always tell my students, you know, everybody's a theorist, you know, I like, yes. you know, lots of people like to think this is something you have to be sort of drawn into or, or educated into, but was, everybody's the theorist. Yeah. It's just, you know, yeah. we have different vocabularies for it. Absolutely. Um, uh, I love that. So let me ask you about this phrase. Um, uh, and it, it you know, I, th- I think where it, it first sort of caught my attention and I wrote it down was in chapter four, which is, is my favorite of your chapters. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm with this phrase invented lexicons. And I really Mm -hmm. love this phrase and wanted to hear you talk about it a little bit. I mean, it's so interesting to me because it's not phrases that may be perhaps more familiar like slang or vernacular or, or, you know, things that that Mm we, you know, uh, may build from that, but it does connect in, it also connects in that invention, right? Invented lexicons. Mm -hmm. Uh, connects this notion of invention, which has been so important in the black intellectual tradition, you know, mm-hmm. this sense of inventing everything, right. And, and right. what's happening in the, in that moment of invention. So I was interested in, I mean, it's poetics of difference and lexicons and words, right. Are part of poetics in yeah. this notion of the invent of the inventive attached to lexicons. Right. So maybe talk a little bit about that phrase, which I really love. And so I want to hear you talk about it. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I have to say chapter four. So it was chapter four that helped sort of, you know, bring that phrase to mind for me. Um, And chapter four, I mean, I, you know, I enjoyed every part of this book. I enjoyed sort of thinking through every part of this book, but that was my, that was my favorite as well. So I love hearing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, then it's, if we both agree, so it must be true. (laughs) It must be great. (laughs) But part of why I enjoy chapter four so much was because, so chapter four sort of thinks about these invented, like lexicons, right? These sort of invented languages that circulate in a range of texts. Um, and primarily what distinguishes the the kinds of, you know, the uses or mobilizations of language that I'm looking at in chapter four from others is that these are named languages, mm. right? These are sort of characters, um, sort of, you know, either collectively or individually na- making up languages, naming them as new language, coding them as new language, and using them to talk with other characters or other figures about gender, about sexuality, and especially about sort of disallowed forms of intimacy. And so, you know, in some ways, this was, it was an exciting chapter to write because it allowed me to kind of bridge that, you know, what I see as a kind of false gulf between the world of the, the interpretive world, right? The kind of expressive or, or sort of imaginary world of the artist and the world of the characters, the world that the characters are inhabiting, mm-hmm. right? The, the characters become the makers in that chapter. So that you have in Toni Morrison's love, right? You've got the two main characters, Christine and Heed, who create this language called Itage, which is a, you know, what we often might think of as a pig Latin, but it's a language that these two little black girls create mm-hmm. to be able to talk about their experiences of their body, their experiences of desire, of kind of womanhood and coming of age. 
Similarly, in Susan Laurie Park's play, Fucking A, right, this, you know, there's this language called talk that the community uses to, to kind of say what is unmentionable about women's desire, about female anatomy, about reproductive autonomy. Um, and so, you know, invention there is doing, I think, important work, you know, sort of uh, naming the, the importance, right, the kind of the newness of this language and the importance of this language and in some ways sort of laying claim to not only the languages that emerge, you know, in these moments, but also naming the absence of language before these moments of innovation, right? That like these are these are moments where these characters, these figures are creating, supplying something that's needed on their own behalf um, and in favor of, again, this sort of disallowed form of intimacy that they might be experiencing within the text, mm-hmm. right? For me, that's also, you know, deeply connected to the kinds of invention that are happening with, again, Lord inventing a genre, the biomythography, Shange inventing a genre, the Korea poem, both of which have gone on to have very rich, expansive, you know, multi-genre, multidisciplinary lives beyond each of their individual texts, right? So there have been several biomythographies to follow Lord's. There have been several Korea poems to follow Shange's. Um, and, you know, part of what I'm arguing is that we see this expansiveness of kind of generic innovation or generic kind of disturbance um, or subver- subversion happening within the text themselves, right? The characters themselves are aware, you know, that new language is needed. Um, and that helps them and perhaps us, again, sort of create community, create space for community delimit community and sort of reimagine belonging, Um, which, you know, part of what I'm arguing with Missy Elliott, right, is that like that happens in real time too. Mm -hmm. And that happens beyond spaces that we think of as, you know, sort of discursive spaces or spaces that are sort of driven by intellectual engagements with language. This happens even in the club, in the moment where you're hearing this song and, you know, sort of every part of the song feels accessible to you until it doesn't, Mm -hmm. until you can't sing the hook and therefore the rhyme fails, Mm -hmm. right? Like you can't even get to the rhyme. There's a moment of kind of community, both in the destabilization of kind of control over language, right? That moment where you everyone looks at one another and no one can sing the Uh song or in the moment of community where you, you know, everyone looks at each other and someone is going to just try because they know what it is. They know it's the, you know, the previous line backwards and going to try to sing it together, right? That these are, these are moments of theory and they fly in the face in many ways of sort of how we tend to understand theory. However, you know, read a particular way, they do allow us to get to notions of difference and power, in this case, Black women's sense of sexuality and desire in really exciting um, and provocative and, in my view, necessary ways. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I thought reading this notion of an invented lexicons and, and hearing you you talk about it now is it's an interesting, for me, an interesting um, balance, or I don't even know, the balance is not the right word, but, you know, what I... Th- you know, one thing I often think about and, and teach and, and write about is, you know, when when Paul Miller uh, talks about, uh, you know, African American cult- linguistic and, and cultural formation as as the original uh, DJ, right? The original mix mm-hmm. of taking bits and fragments mm-hmm. and making a song out of it, right? right? And I always like that as a figure, and it really connects to a lot of the. Caribbean theory that I, I think is really important mm-hmm. and interesting, but it's also very ephemeral, 
right? In the sense of it's mm-hmm. if, it, if it's a if it's a song, you know, it, it plays, yeah. and four and a half minutes later, it's over, right? But this invented lexicon, so, I, so the invented mm-hmm. has, uh, you know, hearing you talk about it now, especially it has that sense of inventing, right, and connection and yes. putting things together, um, in that are attentive to a particular moment, place you know, a uh, group of people, you know, however that group is constructed, but that the lexicon part is, gives it some endurance, right? It's not ephemeral yes. while also having like an openness. Like you say, that moment where it pauses, it's like, we can't sing this part of the song, but someone's right. going to give it a right. try. And it's a song that can be also repeated, right? And it's being repeated yes. in that everyone can sing along. Everyone can mouth along. Right. Yeah. Right. For over 20 years now. Right. I mean, that was 2001. I, like, I mean, just, you and, don't have to do math I know, for us here. I, just... I, know, I know. I, I, I've been saying I'm no math magician. This is like my, this is my, my phrase that keeps coming to mind because of course, like there's, you know, there's, a, as you mark the kind of strange passing of time, I think that we've all been experiencing, especially in these last few years, it's like, you want to do a kind of magic on it and just make it go away. Right. That like, you know, time isn't passing in the way we feel it is. I'm no math magician. However, it is, I think, you know, it's, for me, it's striking to kind of take note, right? That like, that was 20 years ago. It was in fact over 20 years ago. And yet that there is the the kind of moment that we're talking about indoors, right? You can, that song will play in the club today. We could put that song on right now. And you and I would probably experience that same moment of sort of some kind of connection or disruption happening in the kind of inability to, to like, 100% 100% sort of full claim over expectations around language, right? And that's, you know, that does endure even after the moment of the song, you know, has passed. Yeah. yeah. 20 years. I have to sit with that a little I bit. Know. I mean, I just, I, I turned a, a, a number of years old. That's just ancient at this point. And I've, I've decided <laughs> that all math is uh, racist and patriarchal, yeah. so we shouldn't do it. But, well, this is true. But, um, this is true. but I guess there, there is, no an, I guess 21 years have passed since 20, 2001. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Also, I have that moment. I have a kid who's in college, and I look at my college students. I'm like, no way, he's your age. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It's really taking something. us off uh, track here. But um, <laughs> uh, let me ask you about uh, also about the sort of go backwards from chapter uh, four to chapter two. Um, and mm-hmm. this is this moment in chapter two that I really liked, where you shifted from talking about the choreo poem to visual culture. You're talking specifically mm-hmm. about photography. Mm-hmm. And um, it just stood out for me in the sense of, of uh, how abrupt it was, but also how it was not abrupt. It was abrupt in that you said choreo poem, section break, you know, talk about photography, but it also fit. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't abrupt at all, right? It was part of yeah. the a, a part of the same um, theoretical engagement, part of the same interrogation around around difference in poetics. And I think it says something about the the power of your 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 articulation of form in the book that you're able mm-hmm. to move across different mediums um it, without it seeming like well now i'm going to do visual culture talk i was doing poetry mm-hmm. talk i'm now going to do music talk but i wanted to you know maybe just ask you you know what sort of demands did, did that put on you as an intellectual mm-hmm. to because you, it's not just you can come up with this notion of, 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 of a poetics and a form and sort of just disperse everything in it. 
right. it still puts demands on us because visual culture, I mean, it's, it's visual and, and, and music is about listening, but also, as you said, about sort of thinking about place, right? Whether it's the club or the private space of, of headphones um, and the poems, public performance or the choreo poems, uh, persistence on the page, but also on the stage. So I'm just interested to hear you talk a little bit about the demands it made on you as an intellectual. You've talked about what it, you know, inspired putting these together. And mm-hmm. I'm interested in how it sort of tested you as a thinker to make mm-hmm. these shifts. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, with that particular sort of conversation, right, between Entozaki Shange and Zanelli Maholi, you know, a staged conversation, right? A conversation, you know, in my imagination. Um you know, so but part of how I'm reading the Korea poem, right, is that, you know, in inventing the Korea poem, Shange is making an argument about the body um, and sort of naming the body as inseparable from, you know, quote unquote text, but specifically naming Black women's bodies as sort of inseparable from and, you know, sort of inarticulable without language and vice versa, right? That at the same time, you know, sort of, linguistic expressions of Black womanhood and Black girlhood need some connection to embodiment. And in order to in order to be sort of full and expansive and sort of disruptive in the way that Shange wants us to be, in order to name what she, you know, she kind of talks about um, nuance, right? In order to sort of get at the nuance of Black women's experience. So, you know, taking that thread and thinking about how that works then in visual representations of embodiment you know, sort of where do I find emergences of or sort of, you know, sort of interruptions or eruptions of the linguistic, right? The the poetic from a linguistic perspective. In some ways that wasn't, it, 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 I didn't have to reach too far to get there with Maholi, right? Because, you know, this is another moment where Maholi names this text a visual fusion. And so to me, again, you know, when I'm thinking about, sort of the the step it takes to not only sort of make a new genre, but to name it, right? There's a kind of deliberate strategy at play there. It was, it was, I don't want to say it was easy, right? But it was, it was clearly important to me to think about what the connections are then between, you know, what Shange does in the Korea poem, which is a fusion of the kind of embodied with the poetic or the kind of, you know, linguistic. And what Maholi does with this visual fusion, a fusion of the visual image with the poetic in terms of the kind of poetic text, right? And so Maholi's What Do You See When You Look At Us as a print text was really interesting and compelling, you know, in conversation with what Shange is doing as a kind of embodied stage work. And as you point out, too, the connections are also very much there because, of course, Shange as a poet is intent, she's always attentive and intentional about the kind of physical sort of space of the page, the body of the work on the page, right? So in some ways it was a matter of, you know, sort of staying close to those sort of formal connections in my interpretation of each. I guess the challenge, honestly, you know, perhaps more to the point of your question, the, the main challenge there and throughout I had so much more to say about each of these texts, right? Yeah. Like I had so much more that I wanted to say, um, you know? And so it, it, it was very much about sort of making sure that I, you know, that in the writing I stayed 
close to this, this, you know, sort of theoretical thread in this case, you know, again, the quote unquote fusion, right. Of sort of body and voice, you know, on mm-hmm. the stage for Shange or also the screen. Right. Cause the, I also spent some time talking about the kind of televisual um, adaptations of some of Shange's work. And then on the kind of, you know, photographic page or within this sort of hybrid photographic text that Maholi comes up with. In some ways it was a sort of carving away of all of the other things that I would have wanted to say, you know, to, perhaps more fully in conversation with, you know, theater or with, you know, sort of visual studies, right? Having to really sort of be selective about who I bring into that conversation to make those links. No, interesting. No, thank you for that. That was, I think that, you know, know, what what sort of animating my question in, in your response is, is really just what, what it means to do multidisciplinary work that's, that's not trying to do each area of studies language right to do something to do something different and i mean i i will say that that's a thing that i also really loved about the book is when people say what even is multidisciplinary working of it you know disciplined people always have this question i think this is like a great you know it's it's one of the one of the really great examples of of how to do that and as you said it that has to do with like a choice of of how you're going to engage right and how you're going to find a way to say something right that that disciplined people may you know have other questions but uh i I like the affirmation of of in that sense yourself as a reader but also as uh as a multidisciplinary inquiry right Absolutely. And I mean, I think also, too, I guess the other part of that project or that enterprise, right, is sort of figuring out, you know, with whom you want to be in conversation. Mm -hmm. For me, you know, really wanting to make sure, as you said, that I'm, you know, sort of drawing from the languages of theater and performance studies, of visual studies, of, you know, obviously sort of poetry and poetics, and also kind of, it's almost like trying to create a new language, right? That sort of brings all of these languages together specifically to tell this story about what I see happening with difference in power in these texts. And so that was helpful, but also definitely challenging. It's hard to do, yeah. you know, especially as someone who enjoys languages, right? I'm like, I, you know, <laughs> I want to learn them all and speak them all. And yet really trying to stay, I guess what I'm saying is, right, trying to stay as close as possible to the archive. Yeah. Um, and figure out what modes of translation these texts were asking me to to kind of develop. I love that the, the attentive to how the texts were asking you something. I really like that. Right. So yeah. let me ask you about you know is you're an interesting person to talk to as a writer because we're talking about this this book of of critical work right critical theory mm-hmm. literary studies and so forth, uh, but you also you know are a fiction writer. And so I, you know, I wanted to make sure I had a chance to ask you about how you understand the relationship of this critical work to your creative work. I mean, they're both creative work, right. but you know what I mean? The fiction work. Well, um, because, you know, I mean, and, and if the answer is they're just different and then we can move on to the next question, <laughs> but I know that they're, I, I'm yet? sure that they're not. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, you know, as a fiction writer and also now as a critic, um, how do you understand the relationship between these modes of writing, but specifically about the three books that you've, you've made, two fiction pieces and, and one uh, critical yeah. piece? Yeah. So, I mean, 
it would be great, I guess, if the answer was like, oh, they're just different and that's it, you know? Um, but that, yeah, that certainly isn't the, isn't the case in my experience. You know, I come to literary scholarship um, and to teaching as a creative writer. You know, it was, you know, so in, in those moments when I was, you know, 11 years old, you, you mentioned having an 11 year old, right? And I, yeah, when I was 11 years old and I was in my mom's, you know, black feminist library and I'm reading The Bluest Eye and I'm reading For Colored Girls and I'm reading Sassafras, Cypress and Indigo, um, you know, way before I had a kind of, way before I had learned or had been taught, right, sort of strategies for really interpreting those texts, I found them really meaningful and they really made me very curious about, you know, as I was saying, sort of what was going on with language and the, the kind of meanings and uses of language. And also at the same time, I was having this realization that this was something that someone could do with their life, yeah. right? Was produce these kinds of texts and ask these kinds of questions and, you know, sort of create the things that would make readers question themselves and question their relationships to language. And so those those experiences happened at the same time for me. Um, and at the time I only thought, okay, well, this means that I want to be a writer and that meant a creative writer. Um, and it wasn't until much later in my life that I really started to see that, you know, for some, there is a kind of hard and fast distinction between the theoretical and the creative, right? Because that just wasn't my experience, honestly, especially as a reader, you know, we've been talking about these writers who I find most interesting as a scholar these are also my creative influences. Mm -hmm. Entezaki Shange, Audre Lorde, you know, Toni Morrison. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, it, it is, to me, it's not coincidental that all of them, right, those three in particular, refuse to kind of, you know, separate or choose between creative expression and, you know, a more critical or theoretical form of expression, mm -hmm. right? In other words, all of them create and produce, you know, crucial necessary theories and, you know, canonical foundational literary texts. Um, and so, you know, on one hand, you know, I think in terms of like, you know, the, the labor aspect, in terms of my time, in terms of strategizing for my career, those have been, you know, sort of things I had to think about. And those have been, um, yeah, there, it's required some strategy for sure to be a literary scholar and a creative writer. But intellectually, you know, I have seen those two parts of my life and my sort of intellectual life and my inner world as sort of constantly in conversation. Um, and in fact, kind of one and the same mm -hmm. until it comes time again to kind of make a more deliberate strategic choice about, again, you know, what am I working on right now? Right. And, you know, what, what does this look like on the CV? Those kinds of questions. I, another way of putting this that comes to mind often is I see these distinctions as not intellectual, but institutional, mm -hmm. right? And so constantly reminding myself of that and the poetics of difference really helped to kind of reaffirm that for me. Because again, you know, I don't think we get to the Choria poem, the biomethography, invented lexicons, the visual fusion. We don't get there until we are able to kind of see the creative in the theoretical and the theoretical in the creative, mm -hmm. right? And none of those things for me would have been clear or possible if not for you know, all of these important foundational artists and writers who are working in, in both and in fact more fields and genres than that. 
Yeah, and that's a. I love that. I love that answer. I mean, you know, it's funny. I was thinking. You know, you keep coming. Uh, you've come back a few times to your um, to the library as as what you know yeah. as what what made you want to be a writer and the inseparability of of the um, of the creative and the analytical or however we want to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I, yeah, I've thought about a, a lot about this myself. Like, what what in my when did I think like I wanted to be a writer actually for me it was I always wanted to have a note I just thought it was cool to have a notebook in my back pocket and pull it out and make notes you know and I still do that and every time I feel like a you know 12 year old John you know I I wish I could find those but um you know the imaginations (laughs) of what a writer is I think is probably you know the 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 way that the childhood fantasies have so many fewer boundaries you know, if you were to ask yeah, me, you know, right. why don't you write a novel? Right. I can't do something like that. But, you know, 12-year-old, right. you know, John, 12-year-old yeah. Mecca. I mean, we were like, you know, hey, yeah. why not? 12-year-old John is like, let me just whip out my notebook and write a novel now. I wish right? I knew. I wish I could find those. I wonder what I was writing about. Mostly baseball, I think. So <laughs> journalism no, more than that. That's right. More than philosophy. Is, but, you know, still. Yes. Do you still keep, so do you still keep a notebook in your back pocket? Is I do that- often, but now I've moved to a remarkable That's tablet. I don't know if you, if you well, use that, but it's, it doesn't fit in there. So it's a book bag, which is the, the okay. new pocket, I guess. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. It works, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a couple questions to sort of wrap up. Um, the first one about your readers, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, we write books and we have something we want to say and we say it goes mm-hmm. to publication, but we also know because we're also readers that readers do with the book what they do. Right, we can't, and it's a good thing. I think it's anti-authoritarian to not want to control our readers, right? To let them right. find them their way through through our reflections. But at the same time, I mean, there is something that we want as an impact on the readers. And I, I often mm-hmm. make the distinction between a takeaway, which is really like a sense of possession that you, you when you read, you can have a takeaway where you possess something and you just use it. Uh, sort of instrumental yeah. but then there's like what i call like walking away where you actually move a little bit different you feel a little right. bit different like you know and i the takeaway is just really in the reader's hands but i think the walk away mm-hmm. is something we do aspire to we want people to move a little bit differently and it's sort of in that sense i wonder how i want to i want to ask you how you imagine wanting readers to walk away from your book, how you want them to move yeah. and feel and, ha- and change in some way their sensibilities. First of all, I just love that, the distinction between taking away and walking away. So thank you for that. And absolutely, I mean, my hope is that readers will walk away from their experience with this book with a different sense of, you know, sort of the the meanings of, both theory and art or creative expression, right? You know, the idea that what they, that their sort of relationship to interpretation is maybe more complex or differently complex than they might've thought before, Mm -hmm. Um, both in the sense of sort of a responsibility in a way to kind of read, you know, certain forms of expression differently specifically to read the creative expressions of Black, queer, and feminist people of the African diaspora, right, differently to kind of invest the time um, and the intellectual labor 
and in some cases, the emotional labor into kind of reading and rereading and reading for difference, right? Sort of reading for what points these texts might be making yeah. about difference and power in ways that might implicate, you know, the reader mm-hmm. um, or might sort of, you know, create, you know, sort of feelings of discomfort or destabilization, right? Of kind of the reader's sense of, again, sort of claim over language, meaning, and power. And at the same time, you know, also to kind of, it's sort of, I see it as a kind of invitation to a form of pleasure as well, right? The pleasure in learning, the pleasure in recognizing one's own forms of expression and sort of um, hearing and seeing named the kinds of intellectual interventions that one has been maybe practicing all along, right? So this, this is where this moment in the club with Missy, I think is really important. For some readers, I hope that they come away from that chapter sort of, you know, again, feeling that sense of the affirmation and the kind of um, collective joy and pleasure of theory, right? This, you know, an articulation of something that one has lived and one has felt, um, you know, now sort of able to kind of bring forth a set of connections Mm -hmm. in the world. And for me, that my hope is that would be a kind of joyous, pleasurable, uh, you know, set of things to walk away with. I also hope they walk away with the book itself and pass it along to somebody. I like that. Yeah, that's great. And I do think, yeah. you know, I mean, as someone who, you know, my my intellectual and professional investments are in the, the Black intellectual tradition, I just think that one has to even understand that phrase differently after this book. Yeah. Um, well, not necessarily because... I mean, it can be because, you know, you introduce figures that hadn't been on my radar and won't be on the radar of a lot of readers. But that, that to me is just sort of uh, a list. But I think this, mm-hmm. that's why I asked you about form, that I think the, the, yeah. the, the articulation of poetics and form is this thing that really just shifts, you know, it, it's like a prism. It's like a different color sort of appears on a wall. Um, and yeah. um, so I think readers will. And uh I, I do hope it gets passed on. Um, let me you. return the question to you. You know, um, we begin and end books as different people. Um, I think mm. that there's a, a, a caricature of the writer as the big idea, and you finally get it right in the book. But, of course, reading, yeah. you know, and you spoke a little bit about the transition from the dissertation to the book. But, you know, when we yeah. write books, I mean, we are also walking through the process and we are ourselves mm-hmm. changed. And so I'm interested how you walk away from this book, which is both mm-hmm. like how, you know, how the book altered your sensibilities, intellectual, or even just deepened them or however you want to characterize mm-hmm. it. But also this is a chance to sort of where where you go from here. You know, I, I always mm-hmm. hate to say like, what's the next project? Because you have, right. have a right to just love our yeah. books. <laughs> we don't yes. have to be on to the next thing, but also want to do open yeah. to, I mean, you have a novel and yeah. a, and a, and a book tour and, and all of that. And so, um, you know, you have ongoing work. So I also want to open up that possibility, but how do you walk away from this book as the author? Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I'm just going to say, stay in, you know, in step with this walking away with versus walking away from. Right. So I do feel I haven't really walked away from this book. Um, you know, I think I'm, you know, walking away with the book in a different way. Um, in just in the sense that it does, it has come up in several of my conversations about my creative 
life, Mm -hmm. which that is just, it's such a change. I wish I could describe just how um, gratifying and fulfilling that is that, you know, to be able to kind of name my own, you know, sort of um, mutual heterogeneous, you know, sort of complex, all these terms that come up often in the, in the book, right. Sort of naming those drives in my own intellectual life as I'm talking about my fiction. So the opportunity to kind of talk with you about the poetics of difference, but sort of name my investments as a creative writer. Likewise, many of my conversations that I've been having about big girl, people are asking about the poetics of difference. That has been, you know, sort of um, pretty transformative for me as a thinker. It has really allowed me to imagine an intellectual life where these two, you know, sort of spaces might actually converge mm-hmm. in in ways that I might not have anticipated. So, like, that's been incredible um, and wonderful and a lot of fun and very challenging, you know, sort of in the best possible way, right? Like, really being called on to name my own poetics of difference in mm-hmm. a way mm-hmm. um, has been, you know, fun and interesting and and very provocative and meaningful for me. And in terms of what's next, yeah, I mean, I'm still figuring that out. So, my novel, Big Girl, is going to be translated into French, and the French translation will be out in uh, next summer. And so I'll be spending some time in France. And I've got a research project that I've sort of been thinking about for a very long time that will take me to France. And this is going to be, a, a, I think, a pretty interesting way to to begin that project. So, you know, I, I won't say too much about it, except for that I, my hope is that it will sort of continue you know, that expansive trajectory of sort of melding the creative and the critical for me um, in a way that I'm really excited about. It takes me to a part of the African diaspora that I haven't been able to engage specifically with my, you know, just English language literary studies, right? And so I get to sort of think about language in in these broader ways and I get to think about, you know, genre in, in broader ways that I'm very excited about. And always, I mean, I think everything I write probably will be, you know, sort of some form of Black queer feminist inquiry. And so taking that again, sort of to new genres and to new languages, I'm I'm very excited about. Well, I can't wait to see what comes from that. And, uh, you know, if you need, uh, you know, uh, an assistant or whatever to spend all this time in in France, uh, I know a lot of us would uh, come along, but... Um, <laughs> the more the but Mecca, thank you so much. This was really, uh, I mean, I love the book and this is just a fantastically smart and interesting conversation. I really uh, thank you for your time, but uh, more than that, for uh, your thoughtfulness in this conversation. It's really, really interesting. And I think, um, you know, people listening who have read or are planning to read the book, um, there's just so much uh, in this conversation. Uh, to think about and to to walk away with. So thank you so much for that. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. Well, you take care. You too. Bye.